Well, now I turn to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning as we continue making our way through 1 Corinthians 15. We come to verses 20 through 28. This again is God's holy word, even as we've just had the privilege of singing God's word, we now have the privilege of hearing the very word of the living God as it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that when Paul wrote this letter, every word on the page, indeed every letter, was that which the Lord intended. So we have the word of the living God. Let's attend with reverence to its reading, 1 Corinthians 15, 20-28. But now Christ is risen from the dead, and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die... Even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God, the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And this ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. And let's briefly pray. Lord, we do pray that you would bless the reading and the exposition and hearing of this word that that we might be filled with all knowledge and grown up to the fullness of the image of Christ even as we seek to know you more deeply and ourselves as well we pray this in Jesus name amen well you'll probably recall from last week that in the previous verses the verses just before this passage we read Uh, Paul has established the reality of Christ's resurrection. Actually, this was in earlier parts of the chapter. It was attested by hundreds of eyewitnesses, including uh, Jesus' closest disciples who knew him. They knew him well. They knew that he had died. They saw him, him dead. They met him alive again. He was seen risen from the dead by his own brother, James, who would hardly have mistaken who he was seeing. And who did not believe in him, according to the Apostle John, until this time. There were more than 500 witnesses Paul speaks of, most of whom were still alive when Paul wrote the letter. The very gospel rests on that reality of Jesus' resurrection. And then last time, uh, we saw how important the concept of resurrection is, uh, for the gospel would have no effect without it. Because as you recall, uh, gospel, the, uh, the gospel is, is uh, inherently resting upon this reality because if there's no resurrection, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And as Psalm 16 verse 10 says, uh, the Holy One of God can't see corruption. He can't rot in the grave. But if Jesus stayed dead, then he's not the Holy One of God and our faith in him is in vain. And so it's not as if we can say there's no resurrection from the dead, but we'll all die and go to heaven. 
in spirit, and that'll be fine. No, Paul says you can't even go to heaven in spirit if there is no resurrection from the dead, because that means Jesus didn't rise, and Jesus then isn't God's holy one, and therefore he can't be your savior. Your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. And he concluded that passage in verse 19, saying, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable, or the most miserable. But then he begins the passage we read today with this declaration. But now Christ is risen from the dead. You know, if if there's no rising from the dead and we only have hope for Christ in this life, then we actually are miserable. But the fact is there is resurrection from the dead. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. You'll notice the Next two verses begin with the conjunction for. The Greek word is gar. It means that, that the truth of the previous statement rests on what I'm saying now, or at least what I'm saying now uh, is, is intensely explaining. It's giving a significant support to what I just said. So verse 22 really is the grammatical focus of the passage, and that's where we'll start this morning. The main point of the passage is all who are in Adam die, but all who are in Christ shall be made alive. Why? Because by Christ came resurrection from the dead, because he is risen from the dead. In this passage, we also see several results of that fact that Christ is risen from the dead. Paul lists five here at least. He says the resurrection of the dead, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, that is, from the dead, guarantees the resurrection of all who are in Christ. So that's the first sub-point here, the first result of the resurrection. Secondly, there will be an end to all other authority but God's. Third, Christ reigns now. Fourth, death will be destroyed. If Jesus conquered death, in his resurrection, then it will be done away with altogether in the future. And then fifth, Christ in his human nature will surrender all authority to God. And we'll see how that works. It doesn't mean that Christ has no authority in the world to come, but that all authority is per- perfectly in subjection to God. So the main point here that Paul makes, though, in this passage begins with verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So everyone who's in Adam dies, but all who are in Christ shall be made alive. We'll break that down here. All who are in Adam die. That's the whole human race. We are all descended from Adam. Indeed, the Hebrew word for human is Adam, Adam. We are all Adam. We are all the human race. And you'll notice that that goes back all the way to Genesis chapter 1. We're told that God created Adam, male and female, he created them, right? So, so we find that, that the first man and the first woman were both Adam in the collective sense of being human beings, while the personal name of the first human being that God created is Adam. Adam, our first father, stood for the whole human race, the whole human family, all of his posterity, when he was under probation in the Garden of Eden. As Paul points out in 1 Timothy 2.14, Adam was not deceived, 
He says there that the woman was deceived, but the man wasn't deceived. That's not a compliment to the man. It's not a compliment to the woman either, but it's not a compliment to the man either. It's not saying, well, men are smarter than women. No, he's saying, in that case, Adam wasn't deceived, which means when he sinned, he knew exactly what he was doing. She at least could have the excuse that she was deceived. He had no excuse whatsoever. He knowingly chose to disobey God's probation that he had placed him in in the garden. He had prohibited him from eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he had gone ahead and done it, knowing full well what he was doing. And as the covenant head, as the head of the family, as the federal head, as the covenant representative of all of us, when he made that decision, we fell as well. Adam was our covenant representative. He was our federal head, is the, is the theological term. Now some will think that's unfair. Why am I held guilty for someone else's sin? And I don't like the fact on the one hand that I'm held guilty for my ultimate ancestor's sin. But on the other hand, I'm very glad that it works that way. I'm very glad that there's such a thing as federal headship, that there's such a thing as covenant representation of ancestors representing their descendants. Why? Well, because if it didn't, if it wasn't the case that I fell and you fell when Adam sinned in the first place, if I didn't fall because my covenant head fell into sin, well, eventually, I would have broken that same probation. God would have put each one of us under the same probation, and each one of us at some point eventually would have broken it. With the potential to sin or not to sin, we would have at some point chosen to sin, chosen to disobey God, and without the notion of federal headship, then there would be no possibility of salvation for any one of us. Just as no one could be my federal head in the fall, could be my covenant representative, and I could fall when he fell, then nobody could keep that covenant with the Lord in my place so that I could be redeemed. Christ would not be able to stand for me and earn my salvation. So I'm really glad that federal headship works like that. That there's such a thing as having a covenant representative for God's people. We all fell when Adam fell. That's the fact. As Romans 5.12 says, Through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. But just as in Adam all die, as the old uh, New England primer, we were talking about education in Sabbath school lately, and uh, how the, the public schools are supposed to be supporting Christian education. Though they don't do that so much now, the New England primer was one of the the earliest textbooks used in America and in teaching children the alphabet, teaching A, it would tell the children to remember that in Adam's fall, A was for Adam, in Adam's fall we sinned all. But just as in Adam all die, Paul says here, all who are in Christ will be made alive. There is a spiritual aspect to that being made alive now. It's true for believers right now. It's true for you momentarily at this moment. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So spiritually speaking, you were dead, then you were saved, and you came to life. Where God granted you life, and you have faith to exercise, and you can now cling to Christ. But notice that in verse 22 here, it's future tense. As in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. For any who are in Christ, there is still a future resurrection. Just as he had a literal, physical resurrection, there is one waiting for you as well. All who die before Christ's return will rise again. As we'll see later, there's a provision for what happens to those who are still alive when Christ returns. Paul will say, we shall not all sleep, we shall not all die, that is, but we shall all be changed. And we'll deal with that when we come to it. But there is a coming resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14-17, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. A real resurrection. And why will we always be with the Lord, Paul says there? Well, because just as by one man, Adam, death came, so by one man, Christ, resurrection from the dead came. Verse 21. For since by man came death, by man also came resurrection from the dead. We might note that uh, in biblical Greek, there's no such thing as an indefinite article, the words a or an that we use in English. Uh, they don't have anything like that. Uh, sometimes might use the word one to indicate, literally, we're talking about one here. But it's usually just implied. So we could easily just read this as, for, by, so for since by a man came death, by a man also came resurrection from the dead. So it's not saying that by mankind in general or something came death. No, by one man, our ancestor Adam, came death. And also resurrection comes by one man, Jesus Christ. So the verse makes a little more sense if we read it that way. For since by a man came death, by a man also came resurrection from the dead. Also understand that Paul uses the the word here not for an adult male, but for a human being. It's actually the, the Greek word that's used to translate Adam from the Hebrew of the Old Testament. It's anthropos in, in Greek, the word from which we get anthropology, you know, like the study of human beings, right? Uh, death came by the deeds and choices of one human being, and so resurrection also comes by the deeds and choices of another human being. How so? Because of the first part of verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead. Christ literally rose from the dead, which means the conquering of death for you has happened, and you therefore will not be held by death if you are in Christ. In this passage, we see several results of that fact, the results of Christ's resurrection. We've already touched on the first one, I just said it. 
uh, Paul includes it in his grammatical focus because that's the doctrine that's been challenged by some at Corinth. The notion that we literally will bodily rise from the dead someday. We'll get to, get to his later challenges, his, the final challenge he deals with later. Where there's just a, 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 a dismissal, a ridicule of the notion as if it's just illogical to think that people could rise from the dead. But how do they rise from the dead? And he says, oh foolish man. And he goes on to explain not the process of how resurrection happens, but to show that it's a reality. Isn't it silly to think that God can't raise the dead when God can do all the things he's already done? But in this passage, we see several results of Christ's resurrection. And we've touched on that first one. Some have rejected the fact of actual bodily resurrection, but Paul points out result number one of Christ's resurrection. It guarantees the resurrection of all who are in Christ. Not just a rising to judgment. We actually see predicted in Scripture that that everyone is going to rise from the dead, but some to everlasting judgment and others to everlasting glory. And here we're talking about the resurrection of Christ guaranteeing that resurrection to everlasting glory for all who are in him. In verse 20, Paul writes, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. Well, what's firstfruits mean? He's the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. That means he's just the first sample. Consistently, by the way, in the New Testament, the term asleep is used for those who have faith in Christ when they die. Right? And more surely then you can expect to get up from a nap this afternoon if you go home after our afternoon service today and and take a Sabbath nap, which I hope to do myself. I I can reasonably expect I'll be able to get up from that nap. I don't have any guarantees, but I don't have any reason to believe that I'm likely not to get up from that nap. But I'm absolutely certain that when I lie down in death, I will get up again. you will rise again more surely than you'll get up from the next time you you fall asleep. And so death is called sleep euphemistically in the New Testament for those who have died in Christ. Jesus has accomplished it in his resurrection. By rising again from the dead, Jesus has secured resurrection for everyone who has faith in him. So in his resurrection, he is the first fruits. He's just the first sample of those who have fallen asleep. As Paul says in Romans 8, 11, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so he writes then in verse 22 and 23, For as in Adam all die, as we see here, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. So verse 22 by itself has been uh, plucked out of context to support universalism. You know, as in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. So everybody gets resurrected to eternal life like Jesus. Well, no, you have to read the next verse, right? Verse 23 makes it clear that we're talking here about those who belong to Christ. So if you belong to Adam, which meaning, in other words, if you're a human being, you die. You're subject to death. But if you're in Christ, death won't hold you. 
because death couldn't hold him either. Talking about those who have saving faith. Christ rose from the dead, not back to an ordinary earthly life. Think of how this isn't just a resurrection like he performed, which was grand enough, right? But he raised Lazarus from the dead, or Jairus' daughter, or other people in the scriptures who've been raised from the dead. And then they lived an ordinary life and died again. In fact, we're pretty sure we know where Lazarus is buried, right? So, so there's a grave marker there that says that he was the bishop of Larnaca. It's on the island of Cyprus. It says that he was four days dead, friend of Jesus. But we're not talking about that kind of resurrection here. We're talking about something even more gray and more glorious. Jesus rose to a glorified life. He will no longer die. He's not subject to suffering, to death, to decay. And so that will be the case for everyone who belongs to him. Everyone who is in him by faith, you will rise again from the dead and never again will you suffer any kind of physical pain or spiritual pain for that matter. Certainly not death or decay. He's the first fruits. Believers are the rest of the harvest. At his return, as we read a while ago from 1 Thessalonians 4, he will raise the dead and confirm all who are in him in everlasting glorified life. Thus we will be with the Lord forever. As all who are in Adam, the whole human race, die, so all who are in Christ, those who, whose faith rests in him, will be made alive. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In the last time it will be revealed the inheritance that you receive. Well, how in the world will you receive it if you're not alive to receive it? Christ's resurrection guarantees the resurrection of all who are in Christ. The second result of his resurrection here, Paul points out, is that Christ's resurrection means that an end will come to all authority but God's. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule, authority, and power. So the then, of course, refers to Christ's coming mentioned in verse 23. And after that, after Christ's return, then will come the end, as the word meaning for the the purpose for which the world was made, when Christ delivers up the kingdom of God, or to God the Father. More on that in a bit. He'll put an end, he says here, to all rule and authority and power. Those terms include Satan. Satan has power and rule and authority that he's been granted for a time. Paul calls him the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4. calls him the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. He has power. It includes Satan's servants and allies who have power and exercise it in the world. It also includes earthly rulers. All of those things will be done away with to such a degree that everything will be in accord with God's rule. 
Revelation 11.15 Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of, the, of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So all rule and authority, especially that which is not in accord with God's rule, will be done away with. Then third, Christ's resurrection means that he reigns now. He's in the midst of making that happen, of subjecting all of his enemies to himself. Verse 25, for he must reign till he has put put all enemies under his feet. In Acts 1, 9 through 11, the disciples witnessed Jesus ascend to heaven. And then in Acts 2, 33, Peter refers to his being exalted to the right hand of God. So, in other words, he has authority next to God. We're talking here about Jesus in his human nature. As God, he has all of God's authority, but as a human being, he's above everything but God. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 110, verse 1. We'll get to sing this in a little bit here. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Everything's under your feet. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, we read earlier, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. As Hebrews 2, 6 through 8 points out, Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of Psalm 8, verse 6. You have made him to have dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As Paul teaches in Romans 1.4, Jesus' resurrection showed him to be the Son of God. And as such, he is seated in authority over all the universe. Psalm 2, 7 and 8, I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my Son, today I have begotten you, ask of me, and I will give you the nation's for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he put all things, that is God, put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ's resurrection means that he currently reigns. And this is what we call the mediatorial kingship of Christ, that that authority that has been given to him. As God, he's always had authority, but as a man who perfectly obeyed God, all authority under God has been given to him. And he does exercise that on behalf of his church. But number four, Christ's resurrection means that death itself will be destroyed. That should be pretty obvious, right? If Jesus can defeat death for himself, he can defeat it for everyone else, right? Uh, Verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Revelation 20, verse 14, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Revelation 21, 4, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Death itself will be destroyed. 
And then five, Christ's resurrection will result in Christ in his human nature surrendering all authority to God. That doesn't mean that the revelation is incorrect, saying that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, that Christ will cease to reign. But it means that all of his exercising of authority and of anyone else exercising authority under him will be in perfect accord with God's authority. God will have all authority, all in all, so to speak. Then comes the end, verse 24, the first part of verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. The end there again, the telos, the root, it's the root word of perfect that we saw back in chapter 13, that when the perfect comes, when the world to come comes, when the, the world which this world was made to bring about comes. Verses 27 and 28 here. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. So in other words, God places all things under Christ's feet, but that doesn't mean that God is under a man. So it's not that Christ in his human nature is reigning over God. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. As a man... Christ has been given authority, as he says in Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We read a a while ago from Philippians 2, 9 that that God has given him the name which is above every name. Of course, he already had a name that's above every name as God, but as a man, he's been given a name that's above every name. And in Ephesians 1, 22, God put all things under his feet. But in his nature as God... Jesus has always reigned, and he always will. John 17, 5, And now, O Father, Jesus prays, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So he's always had that glory, right? So this doesn't mean that the promises of Christ's everlasting reign, as we just read from in Daniel seven fourteen, for example, of our living and reigning with him, that doesn't mean those won't be fulfilled. But it's saying that in his human nature, Christ is perfectly submissive to God. Think of him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. When God is all in all, as Paul says, any other authority will be in perfect submission to him. All authority in that sense will be perfectly delivered to God, that God may be all in all. In Adam, all die. You and I, being descendants of Adam and Eve, are subject to death. But in Christ, all shall be made alive. As surely as you are subject to death now, because you descend from Adam, if you're in Christ, you will live again. If death can come to us because Adam was our federal head, our covenant representative, then so can resurrection because Christ is our covenant representative, our federal head. Because he rose, if your faith is in him, so will you. Believe that promise of God. Live as though you know it to be true. So many things Christians have accomplished beyond what man could ever have expected to accomplish in the history of the world because they knew that the end of this life is not the end. There's a resurrection to come. Live as though you know it to be true. God will do amazing things through you. 
As we'll see later in this chapter, the sting of death has been removed from us. So it'll happen unless Christ returns before our natural time of death, but its sting is taken away. Its power, its lasting power over us is gone. There will come an end to all authority that is not in submission to Christ. The kingdoms of the world, the power of Satan and his minions will end altogether. Nothing that opposes Christ or his people will last into the world to come. Christ reigns even now and he's bringing that about. He's subjecting all things to himself. Even death itself will be destroyed and that's guaranteed by the fact that death couldn't hold Jesus. All things will be in perfect submission thus to God in the end. So have no fear. Christ's resurrection guarantees all of these things. and You can, as Christ's servant, be confident in them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Christ is risen, and therefore we know that these things are guaranteed. Our own resurrection and end to all that oppose you, as well as that persecute your people, even an end to death itself. Grant that we might submit to you now, even as we prepare to live and reign with Christ forever in perfect submission to the Lord, as we now pray in Jesus' name. Amen.